Acts 9. It's no secret that many people miss seeing God in this world. Uh, For those who claim that God doesn't exist, their worldview simply will not allow them to step outside their naturalistic presuppositions. In other words, that all we have is the natural world and there's nothing outside the world in any supernatural form whatsoever. So particularly miracles, you know, Jesus walking on water, a resurrection. There's no room allowed for that. So they, they presuppose that those things cannot happen, so when they hear stories of that happening, they just completely discard it. And I chuckle at the extent that people will go to to prop up some of these worldview assumptions. A Dr. Doran Nuff, N-U-F, who's an expert in oceanography, cannot accept the idea that Jesus walked on water. And you, you read about this story in Matthew 14. So he wrote an article explaining the atmospheric conditions that take place about every 1,000 years on the Sea of Galilee that can create rare patches of ice. So that apparently Jesus then would have walked on ice on the Sea of Galilee. Now what's interesting about that story, it also talks about great wind on the Sea of Galilee. So actually Jesus would have surfed on the ice as he went across the water, which would have been just as miraculous as walking on water. It really is uh, amusing in one sense when we think of this. But we should not be surprised that there are people who will go to great lengths to stay stuck in the natural world, to not accept the possibility of anything supernatural. It really begs the question, Is it possible for us as Christians to get in a similar state? I mean, I'm assuming if you became a Christian, you obviously think that there's a God and you think that God came to the earth and that he moved in us to uh, have, you know, supernatural activity in our own life. He forgave us of our sins. We all believe that. But is it possible that we take for granted God's movement in our lives? Is it possible that we actually miss altogether God's intervention in our lives. Maybe we don't see it. We don't understand it. We just take it for granted. To me, one of the most fascinating stories in the New Testament is the two disciples walking to the road of Emmaus. It's just crazy to me how you could have two guys And this, by the way, this took place in Luke 24. It is after the resurrection. They are on their way to Emmaus. Two disciples are walking on the road. They do not recognize that somebody, well, they recognize that somebody has joined them, but they don't recognize him as Jesus. Now, not one disciple expected a resurrection, even though Jesus had told them, even though their world was rocked by Jesus while he walked on the earth, their worldview did not stretch enough to accommodate a resurrection. And so 
What's fascinating is that they're telling this, you know, newfound walking buddy that they have, who's actually Jesus, but they don't know it, they're telling him about all these events that precipitated the crucifixion. And they start explaining all of this. Now, Jesus had to have had a smirk on his face at this point, right? Well, then, after they go through all this, you know, it's kind of like Jesus just letting the line out. You know, you've got him like this. He starts quoting, Jesus does, from the Old Testament. And he starts, you know, basically connecting the dots between the Messiah, Jesus, and the Old Testament. And it's only a little later that they have that aha moment. Then they say, what? You're Jesus? <laughs> I mean, how did they not know that beforehand? Our worldview can so color us, blind us, that we cannot see the activity right in front of us. We don't understand what is happening when we take for granted the miraculous, the supernatural, or we deny it altogether. Jesus was right there talking to them, and they did not recognize him. Just think of how often we might misread God's intentions when things go awry, for instance, with a circumstance. People might think that God no longer loves them because they have a hardship. They are misreading that. God's blessing, God's intervention, we might have certain expectations for that. And and our worldview can't fit that God might actually meet us in the valley. Our worldview is just a little too narrow. I think, well, I'd like to assume that we all would want to be in a place where we want to see God's activity in our life, that we could recognize God's activity in our life, that we want to see him work, that our hearts are soft towards him, and we don't miss what he wants to teach us. I want my heart ready for his power, for his presence, expecting him to speak through his word, just like he spoke through the Old Testament to those disciples, as Christ walks with me. I mean, knowing how narrow our perspectives can be make our following passage in Acts even more amazing when you see the response to people here in Acts 9. Let's all stand as we take a look at our passage. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Leda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Father, we ask that all of us might turn to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We see here in these last two instances of Peter dealing with two different individuals, a personal ministry that can be contrasted with 
the public ministry of the apostles. The personal ministry of the apostles was congruent, consistent with the public ministry. I mean, the context of these two stories is Peter is involved in these personal encounters. And what we observe is that the power of Christ is displayed privately. And obviously, the power of Christ was displayed publicly, as in Acts chapter 2. What they claimed in public was also evident in private. That's really how integrity works, is it not? With integrity, what we do in public is also true of us in private. There's consistency between the public and private life. I mean, every parent, every boss, every ministry leader, every Christian should strive to make sure that their public and private life, that these are consistent. When I was in Bible college in Colorado, I was friends with a man who taught our preaching class. He was middle-aged at this time. I was in my 20s, mid-20s. This man would later become a denominational leader. Uh, He would consult with many churches around the country on how churches should grow, how they should get healthier. But I also knew him privately. One day, I was in his office, and we were talking about marriage. And he shared with me, I thought he was trying to be funny, but he shared with me that he would sometimes need to slap his wife in order to talk sense into her. I was shocked. I thought he was trying to be funny, although I wasn't laughing. And I I came at it again just to verify that he was being serious about this. And he was. I was shocked. And I went home and told Janet, like, what do you make of that? I, I can't believe that. It would be of no surprise to any of us that he, is, he divorced that woman. That woman and him are no longer married. We can certainly call that hypocrisy. Call it whatever you want. But the personal and the public life, because I never heard him preach a sermon of the need to slap a woman. Right? I mean, obviously, he wouldn't get any support for that. But privately, he thought that was okay. Hypocrisy. Public, personal life, not matching up. When that doesn't match up, the negative impact is incalculable. A leader will never know the full extent of his or her hypocrisy. Our passage tells us that Peter made it a point to travel beyond Jerusalem to as many churches, to speak to as many Christians as possible to encourage them and to build them up. He did this publicly, and he did this privately. And what I love about this passage is that it just shines a light to give value to what he was doing in a private session. And I want you to notice something. It doesn't say that Aeneas sought out Peter. 
and found him and then begged him for a miracle. Rather, the text says Peter found Aeneas. I think there's something beautiful in those words. The apostle, Peter, saw a man in need and he took the time to minister. He didn't say, you know what? I'm just too busy. You know what? I am the chief apostle. All right? I'm the big shot. I don't have time to deal with people who are crippled. Just too busy for this. You know, my ministry is to the business sector. My ministry is to the upper crust. I'm not going to bother with people like you. Peter didn't think he was too cool for school. And apparently, we can all forget this. Because there was also an instance in Peter's life, that we see this in Galatians 2, that he was a little too limited in his perspective. And he only wanted to hobnob with the Jews and not the Gentiles. And Paul called him on the carpet for it and said, hey, the grace of God that worked in your life, it's working in theirs as well. You have a common gospel. And he took him to task. But here, I find encouragement in that. I, the reason I bring that up. I find it encouraging that, that God is using Peter like he is now here in Acts 9, even though Peter f- would fail later. I can relate to the failure. Can you not? Okay. I really can. And we look at how Peter operated in his relationship with Jesus, you know, denying Jesus three times. And here he is now healing somebody. Just remember this, that God will use you. You confess your sin. You make it right with God. God will continue to use you. doesn't put you on the shelf. Peter found more reasons to say yes instead of excuses to ignore ministering to Aeneas. You know, the Bible kind of encourages this in all of us. Romans 12, 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Romans 15, 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 1 John three seventeen. but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I mean, that's pretty straightforward, is it not? All of us as Christians should be marked by showing care to those in need. I want you to notice the state of Aeneas. He was bedridden for eight years, paralyzed. I mean, this wasn't the case of, you know, somebody faking a disease. This was not one of those publicly staged healings that cannot be verified. This man was known in all of that area as a person who was crippled or infirmed. And when Peter moves to have him healed, Aeneas was told to make his bed. There was to be a a public demonstration that the healing was authentic. Look what he's doing now. It would be a testimony to the power of God And that story would spread, and everybody who knew Aeneas would be impacted by this. And then they could could also draw their own line from that dot of that healing to maybe God moving in their life and forgiving them of their sin. Many turned to God. What was the reason for the healing? 
Was the reason, you know, to shine the light on Peter? No. Peter said, Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ is the one who has the power and the authority to heal. Peter was not doing this to draw attention to himself, to show how great he was, but to give glory to Jesus Christ. The strength was not in a human, but what God was doing through Peter. We learn this in Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Or 1 Peter 4.11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. A ministry that is going to bear much fruit is the one that is steadfastly devoted to lifting up, glorifying, operating in the power of Jesus Christ. That sounds great. I could end the Sunday school lesson right there. We'd all say, amen. We all need to operate in the power of Jesus. Sounds wonderful. Now, what does that mean? How do we do that? I mean, practically, how does that get worked out, particularly in a ministry? How, how would, for instance, a ministry like this, how could we recognize when maybe we're operating in human strength versus operating in the strength of Christ, how would we know the difference? Let me first say this. I think we all have to recognize that just because a work is religious, just because somebody calls a work Christian, just because a work is done inside church walls, and just because, quote, Bible verses, does not mean that that ministry is not fraught with fleshly, worldly, selfish motives and means. There's more to it than that. Christian trappings do not make a work Christian. Any ministry that is truly Christ-centered must be energized by Christ. By men and women who humble themselves recognize their need to be in dependent faith upon Christ in a moment-by-moment basis so that he might work through them in his presence and power. One of the ways we might notice is that when Christian leaders are manipulative, using their authority to wield false guilt, using the church to satisfy their own ego, be assured that leader is not energized by Christ. Human strength alone even if it's masked by religious work during a church service in a church building is still just human strength and nothing more. And by the way, I would also add, it's usually prayerless, prideful, and those kind of leaders usually get ticked when they don't get what they want and people don't respond the way they want. They get upset. Working in just human strength reminds me of Leonard Wolf, who was a author and publisher and literary editor of The Nation. He said this, I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. 
The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past five to seven years would be exactly the same if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. <laughs> and he went on to say that I have, I have lived a long life and ground through 150,000 to 200 hours of perfectly useless work. That's quite a confession. Well, by way of application then, how can we as Christ Community Church maybe recognize whether we're Christ-centered or human-centered? Let me, let me just throw a couple things out. When we're, and by the way, I should I just say, say this off the bat. Let me tell you what you can't tell. You can't tell by the number of people. You could have a, a, a church of 40, all right, that is just as Christ-centered and operating in the power of Christ as a church of 400 or a church of 4,000. And just because a church is big doesn't mean that that church is not operating in, the, in Christ. God blesses churches with growth. So what I'm trying to say is it's not about the numbers, okay? So you just kind of have to get that out of your head. Um, but here's one. When we are Christ-centered, our ministry will value spiritual health and relationships over number of people in buildings. All right? Our ministry will value spiritual health and relationships over number of people in buildings. When the bottom line for churches is money or the number of bodies, we have succumbed to fleshly motives. First Chronicles 21 and 27, God and King David are kind of going back and forth. And God's not too pleased that David took a census. He succumbed to the devil's temptation to rely on numbers as the bottom line. Authentic growth in the church is set in motion by the direct hand of Christ. As we are faithful to his teaching, as we are motivated by his power, as we're operating in his grace toward one another, that's, that's the real evidence of the Spirit of God working in a church. Nickels and noses have little to do with the truth, excellence, or character. Consider Jeremiah, for instance. Preached for over 50 years. And what kind of response did he get? Very little. Nothing. Did God count him as a failure? I mean, imagine... Imagine somebody pastoring in this town for 50 years with little or no converts. The church hasn't grown an inch. There's probably not a Christian in this city that wouldn't say, that pastor's a failure. But I'm here to tell you, if he's faithful, if he's operating in the power of Christ, is God pleased with him? Absolutely. Did he succeed in God's eyes if he was faithful? See, Jeremiah didn't develop some kind of atmosphere or, or show to appeal to the masses. He stayed the course, and he proclaimed the word of God. Now, let me be quick to add. Numbers do matter because every number represents a person. And the specific number matters because how you deal as a church is at 40, 400, 4,000, you obviously have to change your systems to accommodate that. So numbers matter. I'm just saying they're not the goal. They are factors to consider as we strive to equip others to expand 
the kingdom of God. Secondly, when we value Christ-centered, uh, when we are Christ-centered, biblical truth will continue to be a primary value. When the primary value is just getting people in the door, you can mark it down, the word of God's going to be secondary. Always, when the number one goal is just getting people in the door. Newsweek, of course, that bastion of Christian truth, Newsweek, noted this, I quote, the least demanding churches are now in greatest demand. Stew on that for a second. The idea is that churches that expect little in terms of theological truth or moral adherence are going to grow. Now, I'm not sure that's a completely fair statement because there are churches that do grow that are godly and good, all right? So we obviously have to acknowledge that. As historian David Potter, though, pointed out in his penetrating analysis of of advertising, uh, once marketing becomes dominant, the concern is finding a message to hold the audience. Well, that may be good for business, but think of that in terms of a church. Finding a message to hold the audience? Oz Guinness, in his book, Dining with the Devil, he quotes a Christian publisher who said this. Christian publisher. Do books which speak to and resolve basic human personal needs. Puff the benefits and chase celebrities. Promise them the stars, the sun, and the moon, and you will gain the world. It's as easy as that. It's no secret. And then to throw some crumbs adds this, but watch the soul. Ooh, thanks for that. In contrast, listen to the Apostle Paul reiterate this to one young pastor. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work out of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. If you're just going after the nickels and the noses, you can't help but have truth be compromised because you preach the word of God and people will be upset. They will call you rigid. They will call you a dinosaur. They will call you all kinds of names, old-fashioned, judgmental. How can you call this sin? That's just who I am. Here are some other factors to determine if you're being man-centered or Christ-centered. We don't have time to go through all these, but I just throw these out here for your own education. Um, you'll also find this on your uh, smartphone app, all right? For instance, man-centered is purely results-driven, by, um, bodies, bucks, and buildings, all right? Whereas a Christ-centered ministry will be truth-centric. Uh, you look at character fruit and relational fruit as well. Man-centered ministry, simply program-based concern about nothing but methodology, whereas in a Christ-centered ministry, the process is important. Getting people participating in ministry is important, okay? Listen, I am not the expert. All right, I could probably just put a period on that. We could go home. But I am not, I am not the expert paid to do the ministry. We as a staff, okay, it's our job to help you 
do the ministry. You are the ministers. You are the one to love people, to reach people, to be ambassadors for Christ. If I were to die right now and the church were to go on and continue to succeed, that would be the best compliment that Christ Community Church could give me. If the church were to fall apart when I die, I have failed. And you could say that about anybody else on staff. Next is the man-centered ministry is concerned with star power. You know, you're going to have, you know, the guy up front or the woman. Whereas with a Christ-centered ministry, seemingly insignificant people are honored. The people behind the scenes. I love that Friday we had a, a ministry dinner here, banquet for our ministry leaders, who many of you, you probably don't even know what they're, what they're doing, but they're ministry leaders here. They help to keep the engine going around here. And we just honored them. And it was lighthearted. It was wonderful. And by the way, Rachel uh, Doherty, Trish Reynolds did a great job in preparing all that. We just love what they, were, uh, what they did for us. But um, it was just an opportunity for us to say, thank you, we notice you, great job. Uh, next is that a man-centered ministry is, uh, concentrates on authority positions, whereas a Christ-centered ministry um, characterized by servant leadership. So a great leader will serve those that are in that ministry with him or her. You know, a man-centered ministry is simply interested in getting things done, whereas a, a Christ-centered ministry is patient with people because you're developing people. You're not just keeping the machinery going. In a lot, a lot of church ministries, you get so enveloped in what's going on and the, keeping the program propped up. You know, person A can't do it, get, throw them out, get person B. Person B doesn't do it, fire them, get person C. You just keep going through people after person after person. Whereas a church, I think, that is healthy is developing people, finding the place that's best for them so that they can serve, so that they know that they're valued. And then a man-centered ministry is simply concerned about the visible results where a Christ-centered ministry operates by faith. You continue to be faithful, even though you may not see the results. And also, a man-centered ministry breeds vacillation. You just go and find where the action is. Christ-centered ministry encourages steadfastness, endurance, patience. That's a Christ-centered ministry. So again, you can... Take those to your life group, mull those over, talk about those this week. I love that Peter in Acts 9 operated in the power of Christ, and this is what produced the results of Aeneas being healed and then these people coming to Christ. And then we read this in verse 35. All the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him, speaking of Aeneas, and they turned to the Lord. Now, the response was so much, by the way, Sharon is a, it's a territory. It's about, it's a fertile territory along the coast of Palestine, about 10 miles wide, 50 miles long. So that's a wide territory. Everybody who knew and heard about this guy and, and, and heard about him being healed, like, whoa. They were so amazed, they turned to the Lord. Uh, that, that could describe People who come to Christ for the first time, it could also describe Christians who maybe have, have taken this for granted of God intervening and, you know, they're just getting serious with Christ now. They saw the miracle. They saw that God intervened. And it's like, you know what? God really is real. I need to step up my game. 
They believed God. Their lives were changed. Now, in the case of Acts 9, clearly what caused people to turn to Christ was this miracle performed by Peter. And I've heard the testimonies of some of you, and sometimes that's what God uses. He'll use a miracle in your life. It could be a healing. It could be uh, maybe God providing provision for you, and that, that turned the tide. But there's other ways in which God can intervene in our lives. Well, like I mentioned, how about him meeting you in the valley? And what happens at a time like that when God has tried to teach us? He breaks us. He breaks us. And when I, when I mean breaks us, I mean he's breaking our will. He's humbling us to recognize how much we need him. God will often get our attention like he did with Job. If, you've not, if you're not familiar with the story, read it. It's about a man, a godly man, who still had a lot to learn, and he suffered a lot of loss. It wasn't by accident. It was under God's sovereign hand that God was, was managing this. But it was so Job could learn some very valuable lessons and turn towards the Lord. My wife lost her father. It was before I even met her. And this caused her to seriously consider eternal matters. And that's what precipitated her coming to terms with the gospel, even though she grew up in a very religious home. Maybe some of you have lost a loved one, or maybe you lost a job, or maybe you got a prognosis from the doctor that was not what you wanted to hear. And God has used that to kick your behind and for you to recognize that you need to make a priority in your relationship with Christ. My father was on his deathbed before he came to terms with his relationship with God. Now, for some parents, for instance, it could be having a child. I've seen this happen. And when you have a child, like, whoa, you know, now what do I do? <laughs> right? And you realize that, that God has given you this little person and that you, as a mom and dad, are the disciple maker. There's a ready-made discipleship program that God has instituted called a family. And you are given the primary responsibility to teach that child. And that has a way of us standing up straight of taking things seriously and, and then asking ourselves, well, am I a model for my son or daughter in, in terms of, you know, my faith? Do I want my son and daughter emulating how I live my Christian life? And you begin to take things a lot more seriously. Now, here's the sad thing, is that some people will have these negative things happen in their life, uh, or they could maybe even have a child or have a miracle happen in their life. And they don't respond positively. Some might deny it. And others, particularly if it's a negative thing, they might say, you know what? Uh, I'm done with this. In my class, as I teach philosophy at a local campus here, one of my classes, I try to show a, a film 
It's actually put out by PBS, of all people. And it interviews people that were involved in the bombings of the Twin Towers in 9-11. They were either in the building or they had relatives in the building. Some lost relatives. Um, in one case, a, a woman whose husband was in the building. He was actually a fireman. And he went up there and he later was killed. And she had a strong faith, or at least she thought it was strong, before that. But afterwards, she said, I'm done with God. I'm done with God. Others who were interviewed felt like they got out and that was God's hand. Others saw the devastation, got out, and they said, I, I don't see how God could allow this. The exact same event. How can one person say, I'm going to move towards God in this, and another just go south in their relationship with Christ? See, I want my heart to be in a position to where I am, I am receptive to what God is trying to teach me. And that takes, a, that takes a daily discipline. It takes work. I'm not up here telling you, know, you can just wave a wand and it's just going to happen. It's always that. I wish I could say that my heart is always soft or, you know, when Janet talks to me, I'm always at the ready and say, hey, honey, tell me everything you feel. And, you know, I'm here for you. I wish that were the case. But I think you know that it's not. Real life puts things in our way. We have attitudes that can, you know, that creep in. But I think as God puts these things to our minds and we're, we're aware of it, we realize, are there, are there some things I can do to position my heart to be softer, to position my heart to be at the ready? And I'd say absolutely there is. I, I want to be ready so that if God is intervening, he's walking right next to me, I want to notice. I want to see him. I want to welcome his work in my life and expect him to work in my life. And so, I want to daily be conscious of it. I want to daily be in his word, welcoming that tender voice of the Holy Spirit as he's speaking to me. 